Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Acts chapter 4, Lessons from the Church's First Opposition to the Gospel. You know, you would have thought maybe I would have uh, entitled that for last week, because last week, remember, um, actually two weeks ago, when, uh, when Pentecost occurred, you know, and, and, and the Spirit was poured out on the church, and, and uh, the disciples, 120 people that were gathered there, are starting to uh, worship the Lord in tongues. And people are hearing and go, wow, I hear Swahili or whatever language they're from. You know, I hear this language. And they're praising God and worshiping God, which, by the way, that's what tongues is. It's not prophecy. It's, it's worshiping God. And, and so they were worshiping God. And, and, but there was some opposition, you might say, right? Um, there were people that laughed at him. Ha, ah, those guys are just drunk, you know. And, you know, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, for me, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a snowflake, but, you know, I haven't encountered real persecution. No one's ever beat me up for my faith in Christ or imprisoned me or anything. I think it's coming, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, but people have mocked me, you know, made fun of me and stuff. And sometimes you go, oh, that, that, that's not persecution. That's not persecution. That's just people mocking you, you know. Um, what really, what we're going to see here is true opposition to the gospel in Acts chapter 4. And so if you join me with verse 1 as we read together. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So who we get this list of characters. First of all, we have the priests, and we know who they are because, you know, Jesus was interacting with them all the time in his ministry, and, and uh, so the priests are there. But we have this guy that we don't know who he, I mean, we haven't heard from him or about him at all, the captain of the temple. What is the captain of the temple? Well, you know, the priests were all Levites, and uh, the, was the duty of the Levites to guard the gates of the temple. That was, they were like the temple police. In fact, you know, right now, uh, Jordan, the nation of Jordan, uh, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, uh, they have control of the Temple Mount in Israel. So if you want to go to Israel, you have to, you have to kind of follow the police, the temple police, which are Jordanians. You have to, you have to kind of do what they say. And, and if you're a believer and they catch you praying on the Temple Mount, they have the power to kick you out of there. It's crazy. Um, but if you're Muslim, you can go and do whatever you want. But, but if, you're, if you're a Christian, you can't. Or a Jewish person, you can't. Well, the captain of the temple, so they, there was these Levites that guarded the different gates going into the temple. And their job was to prevent anything from unclean entering the temple. Um, they, would, they were like the temple police. Well, they all reported to one official who was the captain of the temple kind of like the head over all the different, different uh, guards of the different gates. And according to Josephus, the captain of the temple was uh, second in command uh, to the high priest. So, I mean, this guy had, some, this guy had a lot of power. And uh, so if you think about it, now, I didn't read it, but the chapter before, there's a lame man at the gate beautiful, and you know the story. Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer, and, and a man asks for alms, and, and the Spirit just speaks to Peter, and Peter drills in on this guy and says, hey, I don't have any money, 
which is weird, you know. You think, wait, wait a minute, I thought they're Christians. We're all supposed to be wealthy. But anyways, um, he, he said, I don't have any money, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And the man, what a miracle, stands up and walks, and he's jumping and praising the Lord. Well, you know, there was a guard at that gate. There was a guard watching it. And maybe the guard didn't see the healing take place, but in chapter 3, it says the crowds rushed together because they, like, they recognized, like, hey, that guy's dancing. And so they all rushed in. And uh, so he may not have seen the healing take place, but he certainly saw the commotion that took place afterwards. He had to have, because that was his job to keep an eye on things. And he probably more than likely knew, maybe he didn't know the guy's name, but he knew of the lame man that was sitting there. Because the guy had been lame from birth. And he was about 40 years old. So how many years? Every year they laid him, or every day they laid him at this gate. So he was well known to the temple guard. I'm, I'm sure he was. So after all these things occur, the temple guard would have reported to the captain of the guard. And so the captain of the guard is one of the people here gathered with the Sanhedrin. So we have the priests, the temple guard, and then we have the group called the Sadducees. You remember there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the professional law keepers. The Sadducees were the liberal theologians of their day. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Well, they were greatly disturbed at what was taking place. Why were they greatly disturbed? I mean, after all, a man was healed. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles, Peter and John specifically, they're preaching Jesus Christ. And I am sure that one of the reasons they were greatly disturbed is they were kind of hoping the name of Jesus would kind of slip off into the, into the distance and nobody would mention his name anymore. Why? Well, because they were complicit in his crucifixion, in his murder, in an illegal trial. And so their conscience, I'm sure their conscience was pricked. Ah, Jesus, I keep, I keep hearing about Jesus all the time. So I think it was... They were hoping that it would go away to assuage their guilty conscience. That's one thing, I think. The other reason why I think they were greatly disturbed was jealousy. Jealousy. Because, you know, Jesus, in his ministry, he drew the crowds. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did not like it. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Pilate, who's a Roman, he's not even in, you know, he's just watching these guys. It says in Mark 15:10, Pilate, that he knew that the chief priests handed Jesus over because they were jealous of him. They knew it. Everybody could see it. And when Jesus taught in Mark 1, verse 22, it says the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So they're just jealous of this guy of the attention he's getting. In fact, in John eleven forty eight, now these are the Pharisees, which are the counterpart of these, the Sadducees. They're, they're conferring within them, amongst themselves. And they said, if we let Jesus alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place, and both our place and our nation. They're, they didn't want to lose that comfortable position they had of authority. And now, Jesus' disciples are drawing crowds. And now they're speaking with authority. And now the people's attention are drawn to Jesus, or to the disciples. And so that bugged them. And then the last thing that I think greatly disturbed them is what they were preaching. They couldn't deny the miracle. I mean, it was right in front of them. But Peter was saying, hey, it's faith in Christ, the risen Christ, that this man 
is made whole. And you see the Sadducees, I call them the liberal theologians, they were religious, but they didn't even believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so here's these guys speaking of the resurrection. So they didn't like what they're teaching. Verse 3, and they laid hands on them. And that wasn't like, you know, we lay hands on people praying. It wasn't quite like that. It was a little bit tougher. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, last week, I mentioned, or a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that 3,000 got saved at Pentecost. And now here, uh, I think actually last week I said there was over 8,000 men, because 5,000 today are at this event. Um, commentators don't agree with me. <laughs> they say that it was 3,000 at Pentecost and 2,000 men here equaling about 5,000 people total, like it's a total tally of believers. Well, if you think about it, they started with 120, and whether it's 5,000 or 8,000, it's just an amazing thing. So you can take it for what it's worth. Either way, it's a great thing. Thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Verse 5, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. So now we have some names. We have Annas. Annas was, he had been the high priest, and he was removed from the priesthood by the Romans. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was currently the high priest, but Annas was kind of like a, kind of like a shadow high priest. Do you remember when uh, Putin in Russia, when they, they were forcing him to have elections, and he had elections in Medved? Do you remember Medved? I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, Medved. I, I like saying that name, Medved. Um, when, he, when he became the president, I mean, everybody knew Putin, Putin was pulling the strings. I mean, you just knew that, right? And then eventually Putin's back in power again, and he's, he's continuing to be the president and stuff. It's kind of like that with Annas. Caiaphas is there, but Anaphas is really pulling the strings. And, you know, that's the first person that they brought Jesus to when he was arrested was to Annas. So we have Annas. So then we have these two guys named John and Alexander. It's like, well, who are these guys? Well, they were probably sons of Annas also. And they were probably of the family of the high priest because it was a family of priests that were in control at that point in Jerusalem, and they were corrupt. So basically, if you had been living in that day and you read this, you go, oh, wow, this is like the top brass of the Jewish leadership. This is like the who's who of leaders. And that's the first thing I want to bring out with the opposition that will happen. And this happens for you and I, too. I mean, this is, these are lessons that we can learn, what occurred to the apostles. The enemy's ploy is intimidation. He's out there to intimidate us. Matthew Henry describes the Sanhedrin, the scene of the Sanhedrin, and he said the Sanhedrin sat in a circle, and those who had anything to do in the court stood or, sta stood or sat in the midst of them. So you've got all these Jewish leaders, all the, I mean the venerable, the who's who, you know, they're all around you and you're standing in the middle. It's like being in the lion's den. In fact, the Gospels kind of refers to that do you remember when Jesus was 12 years old and his family went up to, from Bethlehem up to the feast in, in, um, 
uh, or from Nazareth, I should say, or Galilee, to the to the feast at Jerusalem, and uh, they went as a family and stuff, and then they're all heading back to to their homes, and they're assuming, you know, Jesus is with Uncle Mordecai, you know, I mean, he's, he's somewhere around here, but they get home, it's like, where's Jesus? He's not there. So they go back looking for him, and they find him in the temple, and it's interesting. It says in Luke 2.46, Now so it was after the three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, right in the middle of that Sanhedrin. And he was both listening to them and asking them questions. Wow. It just gives me a new perspective when I, when I read that about the Sanhedrin. It also gives a little bit more perspective on Psalm 22, verse 16, which is a Messianic psalm. But it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I always thought that's happening at the cross. No, I think that's happening when Jesus was arrested before the Sanhedrin. The enemy wants to intimidate you. And no doubt that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to intimidate the apostles. After all, they are the ones who arranged illegally to have Christ crucified. They had that power. They are the ones that had power to banish the people from the temple for life. And they went so far as to kill Christ, so there's no reason they couldn't put put a death sentence on his followers either. So that's intimidation. In verse 7 it says, And when when they had sat them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name you have done this? Now, to be fair to the Sanhedrin, it was their right to actually question them like this. It was their right to do it. In fact, it was even their duty to examine the apostles. Let me read this to you out of Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, I mean, they had, they had the, the, uh, the right to question, Hey, there's this thing going on by whose power? They had that right to ask that. What takes on after that is not, was not good. And so they say, by what power or by what name have you done this? And what they mean is, what authority? Or in other words, who told you you could do this? Who authorized you? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. We'll stop right there. In John chapter 20, verse 22, Christ has already risen and he's appeared to his disciples. And in John 20, verse 22, it says, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same Jesus that had to call out at the tomb, Lazarus, rise from the dead. Why didn't he just say rise from the dead? Because everyone in that cemetery would have rose from the dead. He's the one that said, be still to the storm. And now he's speaking to the, Holy, to the disciples, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. I wonder what happened. I personally believe that they were born again at this point. That's my personal conviction. And at Pentecost, and you can read it there, Acts chapter 2, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's evidenced by Peter's transformation from being timid to being bold. 
We see the gifts, the gift of tongues displayed. We see 3,000 people come to faith by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And now here in chapter 4, in the midst of the Sanhedrin, Peter and John are once again filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is fulfilling a promise that Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, verse 18. He said, you will be brought before kings, uh, governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you should speak for it, was, it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaks in you. Listen, to face opposition, you and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need that. Paul said in Ephesians 5 verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now if you were to look at the ancient Greek grammar for the verb, verb excuse me, be filled, first of all, and I'm not a Greek scholar, maybe someone here is a Greek scholar and you can go, ah, <laughs> First of all, the verb is passive. And what I learned in my studying is that what that means is that it's not a manufactured experience. In other words, you just work up your emotions and then the Holy Spirit's going to fill you. And so it's, it's not that. It's not something that you can conjure up. It's something outside of you that occurs. It's not manufactured. So it's passive. Be filled. It's also imperative. The Greek imperative means that it's not optional. It's not an optional experience. We are all to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it's in the present tense. In the present tense, what it could be translated as keep on being filled or being kept filled. So the filling with the Holy Spirit, and this is my point in all this, it's not a one-time event. It is not a one-time event. In fact, the present tense uh, aspect of the command indicates that we're not relying on a past filling of the Holy Spirit or an expectation that next week he's going to fill us with the Holy Spirit, but it's talking about the present continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. When I read to you Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, you know, don't be drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's making a contrast. And you know, uh, we, we, we know what a drunk person, you know, we, we, we kind of get a mental picture of that. You know, when you're drunk, you're transformed, or you will be transformed. You, you, you know that, right? When you, when you get drunk, a person gets transformed. A, a person that's normally reserved when they're sober, you know, they're really kind of, they can be really obnoxious when they're drunk. I've seen it. A person that's quiet can all of a sudden become very loud when they're drunk. Um, I used to work, I was a maintenance guy for many, many years, equipment maintenance, and uh, the first, uh, I used to work uh, a night shift, and uh, where I worked, there was these old timers, and they would, like we would work overtime on the weekends, and uh, a couple of these old timers, they would never show, we, our shift started at 11 o'clock, they would never show up until, I think it was like 2 o'clock. Why? Because that's when the bars close. <laughs> Seriously. And these guys would come in three sheets to the wind. Well, there was one guy, when he was sober, he, he, either he didn't like me or whatever, he never talked to me. 
And then when he would come in on those Saturday nights, we worked, hey, Don, how's it going, man? How are you doing? You know, it's like, wow, you're a transformed person. I liked it when he was like that because he was nice. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes it goes the opposite. Sometimes a person who's normally kind becomes an angry drunk. Those are, the, those are the ones that are very scary to be around. Or an angry person, next thing you know, they're crying like a baby or they're singing songs, you know. Uh, and then sometimes someone that's moral, they were transformed into someone immoral. I mean, being drunk transforms you. So, so we understand what Paul is saying. Don't be drunk with wine. Well, likewise, being filled with the Spirit transforms a person. I mean, you look in Peter's case. Here is a guy who was timid. You know, he didn't want to. He didn't want to admit that he was a follower of Christ before this servant girl, and now he's speaking with great boldness. He's the guy who would always put his foot in his mouth. You know, he he just said something, and it was like, oh man, why did I say that? You know, and now he's causing the Sanhedrin to marvel at what he tells them, and he's literally leading thousands, literally thousands, to faith in Christ. That's a transformation. You know, the thing about being drunk, I've never been drunk, but no, I've read a lot of books. No, just kidding. You know, once a person stops drinking, eventually they sober up. If they stop drinking, eventually they, 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 they sober up. They revert back to who they normally are. It's the same thing with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Once a person is no longer filled with the Spirit, they revert back to the old man or old woman. What am I referring to? The flesh. They revert back to the flesh. doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation. You know, the Holy Spirit is a sign and a seal of our salvation. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has left them. But what it does mean is that they're no longer submitted to him. They're submitted to their flesh and its desires. And at that point, they're grieving the Spirit of God within them. So in order to stay in a transformed, drunken state, if a person wanted to be drunk all the time, what do they have to do? Anybody, you can shout it out. No, they have to drink, right? You have to drink. You have to keep sipping if you want to stay drunk. If you want to stay in that transformed, drunken state. Likewise, in order to keep transformed by the Spirit, a person needs to continue being filled with the Spirit. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. All fruitful ministry at witness depends on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in Ephesians, or Philippians 1.19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You know what's interesting if you read Ephesians? This isn't a sermon on Ephesians 5, by the way. But if you were to read, continue reading in Ephesians 5, talking about being filled with the Spirit, you know what's the next thing that Paul talks about in that chapter? Is the relationships between husband and wife, father and children, slaves and masters, which we would, you know, we think about employers and employees because being continually filled with the Holy Spirit is vital in our relationships with one another I'll be honest with you I don't always know when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit I don't I'm like oh I'm filled with this man I feel I feel so filled with the. I don't feel it but I can tell you what in my relationships I know when I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit I mean it's it's like pfft, obvious 
how do I know? Well, when any one or more of the fruit of the Spirit is missing from my life, then I know that I'm not filled with the Spirit at that point. And it's not like it's all this condemnation, you know. It's just at this point, Lord, please forgive me for, for my sin. Please forgive me for being full of myself. Please fill me afresh with your Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, I don't, always, I don't always recognize that inside myself, but I do recognize when it's missing. I can be unloving. I can have lost my joy. I can be agitated, or maybe I'm the one doing the agitating. Un, unpatient. Inpatient, I should say, not unpatient. Inpatient. I can be rude in my responses or actions instead of being kind. Be unfaithful or lacking faith. I could be harsh instead of being gentle. Or I could be where I'm at a point where I'm giving in to my sinful passions, whatever they might be. Or I just fly off the handle. When those things occur, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. And neither are you when those things are occurring in your life. i just sorry to bring you the bad news, but that's true. So how do we be filled with the Holy Spirit? First of all, let the words of Christ dwell richly in you. Get into the Word of God. Read your Bible. And then as, you know, as you're reading the Bible, I, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, man, things pop out. I'm like, oh, man, sorry, Lord. I'm such a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. So as the word of Christ is dwelling richly, confess any known sin and repent. And repent means just turning away from him. And then ask him to fill you afresh. Jesus was talking. Actually, Jesus had just finished praying. And it doesn't tell us one of his, which his disciple, but one of his disciples says, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And you know, we call that the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You guys know that. Some churches, you know, they quote that every, every Sunday. But um, he does that. And then he starts talking about asking and receiving. And he says this in Luke 11, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So let the word of God dwell richly in you. Confess any known sin, and then ask him to fill you. Just ask. He wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit, and then be completely surrendered to the Spirit. And that's in your thoughts, because that's where sin starts, you know, in, in my mind. That's where thins, sins start, in our words and our actions. Well, let's continue on here. Verse 9. Peter says, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, and I'll stop right there again. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Man, I tell you, our culture is just, it's amazing how fast our culture is being transformed. You know, if you say, and I'm going to say it right here, if you're watching the lights, I'm going to say it right here, a man can't get pregnant. Whoa, you're a hater. Wow. Where did we go? Where, what, what has happened? 
Good is evil, evil is good. And when you and I are, are living our lives for Christ, the good that you do, and we're seeing it more and more in our culture, is going to be called evil. It's inevitable. And we're seeing that played out in our culture. And as opposition to the gospel of Christ increases, and I think it's going to increase, expect to be maligned. Expect to be misunderstood. Expect to be misrepresented. It's going to happen. It happened to the disciples. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to you. But Peter warns you and I, in 1 Peter 3.15 and 16, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You know, don't get, don't get uh, called an evildoer if you're doing evil, you know. I mean, don't, don't be a wrongdoer. But if you're doing God's will and they start calling you evil, hey, they did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to you. A student's not above his teacher. And so Peter continues, If this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made, made well, verse 10, let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, uh, by this, or excuse me, by him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." You know, it's interesting. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit. We just read that. And the main points of the message of the Holy Spirit is always consistent. It's always consistent. The Holy Spirit's going to glorify and magnify Jesus Christ. And so the name or the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, his death and resurrection and salvation through Christ alone, the message of the Holy Spirit doesn't change. Now, the particular words of the Holy Spirit will change based on the audience and the individual and the circumstances. But the main points is always going to be the same. You can ignore that slide. I clicked on my notes too soon. <laughs> oh, it's pretty to look at though, I guess. Um, the Holy Spirit is speaking through Peter and he's convicting the Sanhedrin of, the, of their sin. Listen, he's speaking Christ crucified. He's speaking about Jesus Christ as resurrection. But he says this, by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. That's, that's tailored right to them. Whom God raised from the dead. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone. Now you can look at this slide. <laughs> Peter's referring back to Psalm 118 and the parable that Jesus told about the landowner who planted a vineyard and he leaded it, uh, le leased it to vine dressers and, they, and then he went away, went into a far country. And if you know that parable, he kept sending servants to collect from the fruit of the, of the harvests and the vine dressers kept killing the servants. And if you know the story, that's referring to the prophets of the Old Testament. And eventually the, the landowner says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. Well, what did they do? They killed him. And so Jesus is referring to this, uh, giving this parable. And then he asks those that are listening, 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In verse 40, and I'm reading out of Matthew 21, he says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said, this was their answer, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus said, have you never read the scripture in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And this is how smart these guys are, how perceptive. You know, verse 43, Jesus is going to take the kingdom from you and give it to a nation bearing fruits of it. And it says there, the next verse says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. <laughs> I love that. So what's the message of Christ or message of the Holy Spirit? Preach Christ, crucified for our sin, and resurrected. And then verse 12, he says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is an important thing to remember. The way of salvation, it applies to everybody. It doesn't matter if you were talking to the President of the United States or a king, the new king of England, you were talking to him. He gets saved the same way everybody else saved. Or a Catholic, I hate to say that, but the Catholic or a, or a Protestant or a, you know, any person. You can name any religion. Everybody, there's only one way to salvation. That's through faith in Christ Jesus. So don't be intimidated by someone's position, by their power, which, you know, God has the ultimate power, right? Or their religious persuasion. There's only one way by way a person can be saved, and that's through faith in Christ Jesus. And, you know, the Holy Spirit. So this says that Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit. And through Peter, the Holy Spirit is planting some seeds, now, now, the Sanhedrin didn't all get on their knees and repent, right? They was all, you know, they, that, that didn't happen, right? But you know what we read later in Acts chapter 6, verse 7? A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. There's some spiritual seeds being planted there. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. Man, I hope that's what people think when they see me. Man, it looks like you've been hanging out with the Lord. Man, that's something I hope people would recognize in you and I. You might say, well, wait a minute. How can this be true for us? After all, you know, we're not living. Jesus isn't walking around among us. You know, these guys, they ate, slept, and traveled with the Lord, and they were tutored by Christ for three and a half years. Well, I want to encourage you, spend time with the Lord the way the disciples did. And how do we do that? Through prayer, through the word, and in fellowship. It's pretty simple. Prayer. Communicate with the Lord through prayer. You're anxious about something? Pour it out. Let the Lord know what you're, what, what's on your heart. Communicate with the Lord through prayer. Be thankful. Thank him through your prayer. Praise him through your prayer. And then being in the word. Hearing the Spirit speak to you through His Word. And then letting the, that Word, as you're reading it, let it dwell richly in you because the next thing is fellowship. That's where you and I, we gather together and we go, you know what the Lord showed me, man? I've been dealing with this this week and man, the Lord spoke this to my heart and I just want to encourage you with that. 
That's fellowship. That, that's what fellowship should be. We come together. We don't like, okay, man, that worship. Oh, man, they were off on that song. And oh, man, I'm not getting anything out of this service, man. Nobody met my needs. If that's your attitude, man, that's the wrong attitude. Our attitude's to come and build up one another. And we're trying the best that we can through the power of the Holy Spirit to build you up. But you're not the audience. You could say, you know, the worship was lousy. It wasn't for you. I'm sorry, it wasn't for you. It was for Jesus. It really was. He didn't, I don't think he cared. I think he was pleased. I'm trusting that he was pleased. Fellowship is so important. We edify others, and we are also edified when we're gathered with the body of Christ. Verse 14, and this fascinates me. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. You know, think about it. This is a private hearing. This isn't like a public thing out with all the people around. This is behind closed doors with the Sanhedrin and the apostles, which leads me to believe that either the, he the lame man was imprisoned with them overnight, or they're like, hey, we need this guy. Let's bring him in here. Get a wheelchair. And well, he doesn't need a wheelchair? Okay, we'll have him walk in. But they could say nothing against it. They can't even, they can't even say the miracle. I can't say anything against it. After all, the man they and everyone else knew to pre be previously lame was standing right there in front of them. Verse 15, and this, again, this, is, this, just, this whole portion here just amazes me. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Did you catch that? What shall we do? We can't deny that this miracle's taken place. Not because, hey, it's an authentic miracle. I mean, this guy's literally healed. We can't deny it. This guy's, no, they said, we can't deny it because everybody saw it. We can't make it go away. Talk about cover-ups. We can't get away with denying it. Verse 18. So they called them and commanded for them, commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Now, you know, we have scriptures, right? Romans 13.1, Christians are commanded to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the, or uh, whether to a king as to one in authority. That's First Peter. We have these commands, but there's an exception to those commands. God's command takes priority, takes precedent. Now, if you and I, and I, you know, again, I think we're going to get to that point where we're going to have to make a decision about whether we're going to obey civil authorities, or we're going to obey God's command. Whether you do, or when you do, I should say, be prepared to suffer the consequences. 
Just be prepared. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys? They're standing before Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't kneel. And so they're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. And they said, well, if that's the case, Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, I like that. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. He may not deliver us, but we're still not going to bow. You know, there was a lot of controversy, and I don't even have to tell you guys about it, because you know about it. There's a lot of controversy among evangelicals regarding civil disobedience during COVID, right? COVID restrictions, vaccinations, you name it. And across evangelical Christianity, there's a spectrum of opinions and a spectrum of convictions. And I would just say, whatever your convictions were or still are, does scripture clearly support it? Peter, and I'm just going to bring this up, Peter had a clear command from the Lord. It wasn't like subjective, because some of the things I've heard is kind of subjective. Some of people's expand, you know, they, they say, well, this because this is in scriptures, this is why I'm doing that. I'm like, I, I can see why you're saying that. But it's a little subjective. It wasn't in Peter's case. The, the, the apostles had a clear mandate. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said, you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. He said, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. He said, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. That is a clear mandate. You can't go, well, I don't know. I think they misinterpreted what Jesus said. (laughs) There's no way. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What had they seen? They had seen the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. They had heard the teachings of Christ Jesus. You remember when Jesus healed the, the guy that was filled with like a legion of demons there in the Gadarenes area? And uh, this guy was, I mean, he was totally insane. Nobody, they, you know, he was like, everybody feared him because this guy was bonkers being demon-possessed. And then Jesus heals him, drives out the demons, and he's, they find him there. He's clothed. That was the first time in a long time. He's got, he's got clothes on. And he's sitting there in his right mind, and they're like, whoa. And, and then when Jesus is leaving that region, the guy wants to run into the boat with Jesus. Man, he just wants to hang out with Jesus. What does Jesus say? Hey, Go back to your own house. Tell the people who knew who you were before all the great things that God has done for you. You know, that's one thing with sharing your faith with people. I just want to encourage you, share your testimony. What have you seen? What have you heard? You know, people can oppose and argue your theology. They can disagree with you and argue with you about that. There's one thing they can't argue with, and that's your testimony. Because it's your testimony. They can say, well, I can't believe. No, it's true. this is what happened. This is what the Lord's done in my life. They can't argue it. So share your testimony. And so here the people, it says there in verse 22, or verse 40, uh, 21, I should say, they glorified God. What? For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. 
40 years old. What year is this? Uh, well, Jesus, what, 32 AD, roughly? You know, Jesus lived for 32 years and was crucified. So this man probably was a young man when Jesus Christ was born. You know, who knows, 8 or 12 years, give or take a few years, whatever. Not sure, but he would have been alive when Jesus was born. Did that mean he had encounters with Christ? as a young man maybe when jesus was there in the temple at 12 years old was he there as a young teenager passing by in, in the in jerusalem or something would jesus have passed him by at the gate beautiful you've been there for many years maybe jesus completely walked by why didn't jesus heal him at that point you know we can speculate about that we have no way of knowing but what we do know is that this is God's sovereign timing for healing him. And it was perfect because God was glorified. Because at that point, the Lord used it for 2,000 people, at least 2,000 people to come to faith in Christ. So we can say, you know, why, why aren't you allowing, Lord, why aren't you doing something in my life right now? You know, I've been waiting for this, and, and you're not doing this and stuff, and there may be a reason why. And I can't give the reason to you because I'm not God. But, you know, when you come against something you don't know, fall back on what you do know, man. God loves you. He's got a plan for you, and it's not for harm. It's for good. And he's going to use it for his glory. And so, you know, sometimes, sometimes you say, Lord, I, don't, I can't see what's going on, but, you know, I'm, I know who you are, and I trust you in this. And just rest in that. Rest in that. Verse 23, And being let go... They went their way to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Man, they're back in fellowship. Hey, guess what happened to us? <laughs> you know, they go back and they share their testimony. In verse 24a, it says, When they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Man, they're united in corporate vocal prayer. You know, right now, the church has the luxury of having different opinions about things. And I'm not talking about not, you know, the, the, the big things where Jesus Christ is kind of like diminished and stuff. But I'm talking about, you know, do you believe in sprinkling or dunking baptism or you believe in the rapture or, you know, whatever you believe in and stuff. Those kind of things. We have the luxury of, of, of just kind of having our separate things. When the persecution hits in earnest, I don't think it's going to matter. if Are you Baptist? Wow, I'm charismatic, or are you charismatic? Man, I'm Lutheran. I don't think that's going to matter. Do you love Jesus? Are you being persecuted for Christ? Man, you're my brother, and you're my sister. That's when it's going to matter. So with one accord, they're united in corporate and vocal prayer, by the way. They're vocally praying. Second half of verse 24, And they said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. What did they do? They prayed the scriptures. That's what they did. They read the scriptures. It dwelt in them. They knew the scriptures. And then they understood how the Psalms, because they're mentioning, they're quoting Psalms, they understand, understood how the Psalms applied to their situation. And then they prayed accordingly. Let me encourage you when you're doing your reading your devotions, when you're reading the Bible, 
as 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 things as the Lord as the Holy Spirit is showing you things and speaking to you, stop and pray accordingly. If there's an area where you're like I'm lacking that, Lord, 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 I don't I don't measure up to that, Lord. Please help me in that area. Or you see something, man, God has done. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Respond to the Word of God. That's how you're going to grow, and and that's what the Word of God is for. It's not just for you to just to you know come here on Sundays and hear me spew it out spew it out, whatever. Probably sounds more like spewing, but anyways. Um, no, seriously. That's what they're doing. They're taking the scriptures, they're seeing the application, they're understanding it, and now they're praying accordingly. And you look at it, they had the conviction of the power of God. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And when you're being intimidated, you need to know that. And God's on the throne. You're not on the throne. You, yeah, you may think you have the power, God's on the throne. He's got the power. And they had the conviction of the futility of man's rebellion. They're quoting out of the Psalms. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. It's futile. If you follow that verse a little bit later on, it says God laughs at them. (laughs) And then they remembered how Jesus went before them. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Man, they recognized. They remembered how Jesus went before them. You know, anything that you're struggling with, anything that you're like, man, nobody nobody can identify with what I'm going through, Jesus can. And he's experienced it worse than you ever had. I guarantee it. Verse 29, now, Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After having been threatened by the Sanhedrin, what do they do? They pray for more boldness to continue teaching and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Ever wondered what that shaking is? I I do too, but I have no idea. I can't even, I can't pretend like I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but here again, once more, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that through the book of Acts. It's not just thrown in there to kind of, we got to get like 70 words in this chapter. No, there's a reason why it's in there, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So in closing... First of all, remember the enemy's ploy. When you're being persecuted, when you come against opposition, it's to intimidate you. And, to be, and when you're intimidated or any kind of opposition, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, all fruitful ministry and witness depends on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And you know, as you and I follow Jesus Christ, and the more that we live our lives according to scriptures, we're going to be maligned. We're going to be spoken of as evil. It's happening already. Expect it. And what do we do? We just preach Christ. Christ crucified for our sin and resurrected. It's really simple. You don't have to get into all the other things that are side arguments about, you know, whatever you want to get into. Man, just preach Christ and him crucified. That's, that's what changes people. And then spend time with the Lord the way the disciples did in prayer, the word, fellowship, Share your testimony. Nobody can argue your testimony. 
And then what you guys are doing here today, edify your fellow believers and be edified by fellowship. It's so important. And those years when we had the, we had, you know, the, the COVID stuff, man, I tell you, that was, that was hard. It wasn't just hard for me as a pastor. You know, it was, it was hard because we weren't in that fellowship. Some people think, you know, I can just worship the Lord on my own. I don't really need to go to church. I can have church with just me and the Lord. And that's true, you can. But you're not the church, by the way. You're a believer in the Lord because the church are the called out ones. It's, it's, it's plural. And, and, and if, you're, if you think that you're growing because you're spending time with the Lord, but you're not spending time with the fellowship, you're deceiving yourself. Because it's as I'm with you, and you're sharing things, and you're encouraging me areas, or maybe you go, you know, Pastor Don, can I just share this with you? I'm, I, I, I just want to share with you. I'm seeing this in your life. You know, iron sharpens iron, right? doesn't matter if I'm a pastor or, you know, I can step down from here. I'm just I'm the same as you. But we're to encourage each other and to edify one another. And then finally, be united in prayer. That's where we're going to end this morning. All <laughs> uh, oh, kids are coming in good. We had, we're, we're short on a worship uh, children's ministry song. We're waiting for the keyboardist to come in here because we're going to have a closing song. But um, before we do that, um, one of the things that I just want to encourage you guys with, and uh, I'm just going to make it really simple. Um, you know, we don't have any chandeliers here, so you don't, you don't have to be fearful about swinging from any chandeliers. Or we have no chandeliers to swing from. and um, I, I'm not carrying a coat, so I'm not going to, you know. I want to give you an opportunity. If you want to pray this morning to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I want to pray for you this morning. And so what we're going to do, I'll have you guys stand up, if you would, stand up. <laughs> and have you close your eyes. And if you're here this morning, and, uh, you know, uh, saying, you know, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean, oh, man, I'm not a Christian. No, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside you. It's, this, isn't, this isn't to receive Christ. Although, if you need to receive Christ, I'd like to pray with you for that, too. That's, that's always an option. But if you want that filling of the Holy Spirit, you know, the Father wants you to be filled with his Holy Spirit. He wants that to you. He wants to give you everything that you need for life and godliness. He wants to be that in you. And so, like I said, you know, what father, if you ask the father for an egg, he's going to give you a rock. And Jesus knows how to good gifts. And if you ask him, He'll give you the Holy Spirit. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. And you know, the thing is, the first time that I ever prayed this way, you know, I just, when you and I are saved, do you all of a sudden, like, all of a sudden you've got this, your voice changes and you're, you're this totally different person because you're born again. Do you feel different? You're the same person, but inside you're transformed. But how do you know you're saved? Well, I know because Scripture says it, and I believe it. I mean, sometimes I don't feel like I'm saved, but you know what? I know that I am because Scripture says I'm saved. So you receive salvation by faith. It's the same with the filling of the Holy Spirit. You receive that by faith. And again, it's nothing you conjure up. I'm not going to have anybody come up here, please. You know, I'm going to wave my shirt and you guys fall down. I'm not going to do any of that. So don't be afraid of it. But I want you to just give you an opportunity to be filled this morning. And so if you're here this morning and you'd like to be filled with your Holy Spirit, man, just raise your hands. I'd, I'd love to pray for you this morning. All right, praise the Lord. Father, Lord, you see the hands 
of those this morning that are just calling out to you saying, fill me afresh with your spirit. Lord God, I pray for these people. Lord, I thank you for them. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, they are hearing your spirit speaking to them. And Lord, they want more of you. Lord, may you fill them afresh, even this morning. Lord, may they be transformed by your Holy Spirit. May you do that work that only you can do in us. And Lord, may you give them, maybe, maybe they've never had spiritual gifts that they know of given to them. Lord, may you give them your spiritual gifts, whatever it is that you choose to give to us, Lord. And Lord, we receive that filling by faith in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here. Lord, may you fill each one of us afresh. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and worship the Lord with this last song. So I just encourage you, make it a prayer. Jesus.